Welcome everyone to episode six of Popcorn Peeps, the podcast in which we venture through the top 100 films of all time, according to Hollywood Reporter. This week we'll be checking out Dr. Zhivago. Today I am joined by my host, Craig Moore. Hello everybody. Sarah Alexander. Hello. And Chris McMullen. Good afternoon, everybody. This film is based on the 1957 novel of the same name written by Boris Pasternak, with the film version being adapted into a screenplay by Robert Bolt and directed by David Lean. The film stars Omar Sharif as Yuri Zhivago and Julie Christie as Lara in the two lead roles. So let's get right into it. What did you guys think? So straight up the first 10 minutes of the movie were rough. You didn't love the overture. The 10 minute long Overture. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. We have to go back. Overture. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Eh. No, thumbs up. Overture was cool. Eh. It was cool. I did fast forward, though. <laughs> this is what we did wrong. The overture is great for setting the tone and the mood, but you got to play the overture while you're getting your popcorn, while you're getting your snacks, while you're getting your crew assembled to go to the sofa to get everyone in the headspace. <laughs> you can't sit down, then stare at the birch paintings for six minutes. You gotta... I liked the paintings. Me too, very much. They're really nice. Oh, it was really cool. It was done by a Hollywood artist named Maciek Petrowski. Did a good job. Cool. I'm almost upset that I'm never going to see them because I skipped through almost the entire intro. Holy smokes. Yeah, you could still see them when you were spitting forward. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Craig, go ahead. Tell us what you thought of the film. Uh, You know what? All things considered, I thought it told a very interesting story. However, I don't think it needed to take three hours to do it. Did you do a COVID test recently? Uh, no, why? Because it seems like you have no fucking taste. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he said that one loaded. (laughs) You've been cooking that one up all week, haven't you? I'm glad you went first. (laughs) This film is so far above anything else on this list. I can't even believe that you don't like it. It's so good. I said it told a good story. It didn't need to take three hours to do it. I didn't shit on the movie. I think it was a good movie. It didn't need to take three hours. If it was longer, I would have watched more. Well, I would have watched it too because I'm doing a podcast about it. But I didn't want to watch a three-hour movie. Holy shit. Half the final act was sitting there watching him write poetry in a language I don't know. What a waste of time. It was for atmosphere. All right. We can can talk about pacing a little bit later because I do have some thoughts on that. All right, Sarah, hit us up. What do you think? I enjoyed it. I was there for it. There were things that I really enjoyed. I liked the cinematography. I loved the music. I liked the costuming. There were some blips with the acting. Sometimes I found that a little bit rough, but overall, I really enjoyed it. I really liked the aesthetic as well. It felt like it's obviously based on reality, but from our perspective, it looks almost like pseudo fantasy almost. Yeah. You could tell it was made in the 1960s, and I liked that that you could kind of see that projected through the costumes, but I, I really enjoyed it. It felt exotic. How about you, Chris? I loved it. It could have been longer. I wanted more. It was fantastic. And like this, ugh. the costumes, that red and black dress. Remember that one? Jordan. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. I just meant I like the dress. Okay. <laughs> I guess there was a woman in it. Who was wearing it again? <laughs> I think it was Laura. I'm just joking. Those long gloves. That's the aesthetic right there. We got to bring that back. Yeah. I found, um, like, with Airplane and with Pan's Labyrinth, I hit a wall, like, in the movie where I'm like, oh, my God, this is still going on. But then with this one, that didn't happen until maybe the last half hour, so I think it kind of fell off the rails for me, but... 
I think it hit that wall for me between a couple of the acts, but it picked itself back up. It managed to pick itself up off the floor in ways that nothing else we've watched has. There's definitely parts of the movie that drag on and aren't enjoyable, but wait 10 minutes and something awesome will happen and you'll be happy you're still watching it. Well said. This wasn't just a film, it was an odyssey. It started way back at the beginning of the 1900s and you follow for years and years and years through the introduction with his brother after the fact and coming back to that book ending, the bits around pre-World War One, World War One, and the Russian Civil War. But I just love that it took you on a ride throughout history following the perspective of not an everyman per se, because he was obviously linked to high society, doing much better than most at the time, but just being able to see him as a much more relatable individual. It was a war movie, but it wasn't following a soldier or a general. So it was interesting to have that different perspective and have him focus on his romance and his family while trying to almost ignore the war, interestingly enough. So what did you think of the characters? Did you have any particular favorites? Anyone you thought did a great job? Anyone you just hated? I think my favorite character just from a delivery point of view would be Komarski. Does he have a first name? The bad guy. Oh, okay. His first name is Victor. So that's how I referred to him as. I thought he was the best actor out of the group of them. A lot of times I found the delivery was like line and line and there was no back and forth. I found he was a much better actor. And I know Rod Steiger, who played the role, he's also in On the Waterfront, which is further on our list. So I think that was made before this. I think he does have more of that method acting background, which none of the other actors in this movie had. Um, Like the daughter at the beginning, Tanya, or the girl that they're trying to figure out who her parents are. I thought she was brutal. And I hate hated her. But yeah, he was my favorite character. The rest of them were great, but he just stood out for me. Yeah, he does a really good job of making you hate him. He's aggressive. His lines are delivered very well, very cleanly. He doesn't feel jarring or stilted. And not to say the other characters do, but he definitely has more of a flow to him. I have a quick question, Sarah. Since he was your favorite, was it a change of heart in the second act of the film when he came to essentially escort them out, saying that Lara's current husband had committed suicide and they were trying to get him out? I felt that felt a little weird considering how he portrayed himself in the first half and he was very aggressive and antagonistic. Yeah, I don't know if it was a change of heart or it's still just something that he wanted and he thought that this might have been a method to get it. Yeah, I agree with That's that. That's how I felt. Definitely. I thought that he saw an opportunity to take advantage of a situation, so he shot. It was a bad deal for everyone except him but it was the best deal available to them at the time Mm -hmm. yeah that's fair because even when the daughter is describing how she was lost she's like we were running through the streets and he just let go of my Mm -hmm. hand like that shows me he didn't give an f about this kid like he was just there to try and get what he wanted I have a quick question. I think I wrote the wrong name down for Shivago's wife. Was her name Tanya or was that not Tanya? Yeah, hers was yeah. Tanya, but I believe with an O. And then the new daughter or whatever is Tanya with an A. Which my wife pointed out is quite strange that you would uh, name your love child after your wife. <laughs> odd odd yeah. choice. <laughs> he wouldn't have na- he wouldn't have named her. No, she did it. She did it, which is even weirder. No, it's an homage. <laughs> named her love child Lovers. after her lover's <laughs> wife. God, that is some weird shit. The wife was super supportive of this whole relationship because even in the letter she left behind, she's like, go on and live your life. Like, I'll support you. We're in Paris now. She was done so dirty. Yeah. Like, she was... <laughs> They're Europeans. She was it's like different. the perfect wife. She was the real victim in this story. <laughs> she's like, oh, of course, we'll completely pick up our lives and leave. I'll follow you anywhere. You go to the war. I'll be there waiting for you, raising our children, making you food, growing vegetables. And he's like, nah, I'm gonna fuck this blonde bitch. Fuck <laughs> Just you. Just gotta go into town. 
town again. He goes yeah, into I town. Forgot, I forgot the I forgot the milk. <laughs> Gotta go to the library. <laughs> My bad. So he goes into town to break up with her, and then he gets shanghaied by the militia, <laughs> and on his way back. And I said, well, I guess the lesson here is never break up with your side chick. <laughs> and my my wife says, no, the lesson here is don't have a side chick. <laughs> so old fashioned. <laughs> I really rooted for Shivago. I thought he was a great self insert character where you could kind of put yourself in his shoes. But then he starts getting a little um, a little frisky, and I'm like, well, he, up until this point of the film, at two hours, you're like, I really believed in you, and now you're just a shithead. And so I really did like that he disappeared and got abducted while he was trying to right his wrong. I thought that was a nice little attempt at redemption. Unfortunately, it didn't quite work out so well. He got hoodwinked into the ice and snow. It was like he had to do his time or something. Wow. He got rid of his ball and chain by the time he came back, so he was free to be with his lover. <laughs> maybe they should have portrayed his wife as being a little more of an asshole so that you could maybe sympathize with his desire to escape that, but she was so nice. I don't know. I feel she like that so might nice. have been... Uh, untrue to this story the story wasn't trying to tell you a convenient truth about the way you'd understand it it was just a story about crazy shit that happened to people during the bolshevik revolution i did love that the love story wasn't conventional it didn't follow a typical arc it was kind of like ups and downs and lefts and right and switching directions i like that it it didn't feel like i could sit down watch the first 10 minutes of it and then know where it was going like obviously you see the final bit because you have the context of the first scene with the brother years later but like how you get there is not what i thought was going to happen so i really appreciated that one thing that i felt was missing in the movie and if you guys noticed this as well perhaps that for the first two acts everyone was just grabbing lara and dragging her around every person that talked to this girl would grab her by the arm and drag her somewhere and she had no agency at all and then she had one moment where she took some control back and then it seemed like immediately after that she just went back to her old flimsy willy-nilly self yeah, but she's like a 17-year-old woman in 1915 Russia. Yeah, what I'm saying is her character didn't develop at a key moment where I felt like it should have developed. Her character didn't really develop at all until the very end of the movie, I felt like. Well, once she shoots the guy and goes off, she kind of disappears, but she clearly takes agency. She finishes her education. She goes and becomes a nurse. She starts her, her career path. And even in the second half of the film, she's living with her daughter, sustaining herself. She's seceded from her husband and she's doing her own thing i thought that was a logical follow-through from the abrupt moment you had at the christmas party in the first act but the reason she f she becomes a nurse is so she can go find her husband like all she does is chase men around through the whole movie is that it i didn't see that but i feel like in 1917 russia maybe women didn't have much more of an option a man would have been stability and now yeah. she's kind of just free floating she does it like yet yeah, comrade we are all equal under the red we're sun. equal but what happened to her when she was 17 i just think she then started to depend maybe on men because she chased that komarski and then things kind of turned sideways and then she was going after after Pasha and then he was also super controlling so she's only ever been with these controlling men and then she had someone like Dr. Zhivago who was at the beginning like respectful that he was in a marriage and they were just kind of friendly and she said like you don't have to lie to your wife about anything so I think that was kind of a different type of person she's been with that she could then grow from there. I didn't like that justice never happened to Victor. He did a bunch of horrible shit and he, his uppance never came. Like he, he became the chancellor of some city state or some shit and that was his punishment? Like, get out of here. He's the minister of justice. 
that's about right. I, like that checks out. Yeah. He got his justice, became minister of justice. This is clearly <laughs> decades and decades before hashtag Me Too, man, because this never would fly today. He would have been canceled so fast. Yes, he should have been. I like the irony and the contrast between his behavior and his title at the end. I thought that was just a nice political commentary on the state of affairs. A broken system. Speaking of Pasha, I really thought he should have got more screen time. Yeah. I was really hyped for the second half because they got off the train, he gets pulled in, you have that really tense scene between Pasha and Shivago, and that's the last you see of him. I thought his acting was really good, I thought he was intimidating, I liked his backstory and his origin, I like how he was willing to protest peacefully, mm-hmm. but in the face of adversity, becomes this, this true advocate of the revolution. I totally agree with you. He seemed like he had a really good fire. He was a great character, and he, he had one of the more interesting developing story arcs where yeah he just wanted to you know walk politely and protest the situation of things and then he got attacked by the city police i assume it was dragoons the the czars dragoons yeah the the dragoons right and then he was just like all right you want to fuck let's fuck (laughs) like and then he became this monster he became the demon that these people were afraid of afterwards yeah i did enjoy that i liked his he basically like went to the dark side changed his name yeah (laughs) he's anakin skywalker cut my hair and changed (laughs) my name well that's like lennon too lennon's real name wasn't it was something else what was it they all changed their names when they to become something they weren't is that to separate themselves from that so if it blows up in your face you can go back to your old name i think so yeah the scene with Pasha and his new name and Dr. Shivago on the train I thought was really well written and it had a lot of great lines out of that dialogue between the two of them but I don't know how much of that would have come from the book and how much of it would be the screenwriting so I don't know if the screenwriting was actually great or if they just had really good basis to work off of. It's hard to say because none of us have read the book. Actually I would be interested to go back and read the book after this because I've heard it delves a lot more into philosophy and a lot more of the wartime elements. Interesting. So when this was adapted it was really hard to do war accurately and portray it well if you wanted to do that in conjunction with focusing on a romance so they chose to side more on the side of romance and i think it would be really neat to see the full fleshed out version of this with like ton of political intrigue romance philosophy ideals on on life and the state of affairs during that time i think would be really cool so you're saying they should hobbit that movie I think it was more interesting to focus on the love story for a film that was being made in the 60s about, you know, the rise of Soviet, the Soviet Union. If they had focused on the war and the rebellion and the change of state, I feel like it would have unfortunately just turned into this Western vision of how horrible communism was. And it would have been maybe turned into this pandering anti-red movie that like, you know, I understand why they would make it, but I'm not really interested in seeing that film. I'm way more interested in seeing this interesting love story. I think given the medium of film, it was much more compelling to stage it the way they did. I think that was a great choice by the producers to do what they did and focus where they focused. What did you guys think about the way the timeline worked and the way it was paced starting way back in the early 1900s and then proceeding through several decades? Did you find that jarring at all? I really enjoyed it. I liked seeing the progression and I liked seeing how desolate they made being under the monarchy feel to the poor people. But then at the end, you can see how just desolate it still was to everybody now under this communist rule. I liked seeing that progression and it was a nice backdrop to this story and seeing how they navigate it. I think Victor was still pretty comfy the whole time. 
<laughs> yeah, there's a great feeling of dread and they do a really good job of nailing that home because things start off and it's not good, but even through revolution and counter-revolution, that feeling of helplessness for the people remains. And I think so much time passing while maintaining that feeling of corruption and suppression, it just made the film feel much more impactful in the messages it was trying to portray and the feeling it was trying to generate within the audience. One of the great moments where it did this was this uh, image of these two trains on separate tracks and on one train people are packed in like livestock and they're turning the hay every day and having to decontaminate and on this other track a man has an entire rail and train for himself and his office on on the rail and it was like we're all supposed to be equal so no one is above riding in a, a stock car like a piece of livestock except this guy who's towards the top we like him he gets to do whatever he wants yeah a true display of hypocrisy yeah it was a really good example of how communism went wrong right from the beginning right mm -hmm. the implementation and how that the train had to stop at the one point while this other train got to fly by at full speed no restrictions for it it no rules for them but for these 800 people on this train there was other rules who are like eating a potato a day yeah they have to wait a whole day because he's coming i was like why is yeah. that why are they on a siding and then all of a sudden that was a baller train though like if you're gonna it have was a cool train like if you're gonna have a train paint that train bright red with red flags on top <laughs> yeah. of it so everyone knows this is a red train yeah fun fact that was filmed in canada uh using the cpr was there more locations in canada i meant to look it up but like some of that desolate cold must have been canada i saw they shot in finland uh, too okay some of it in Finland, but most of it in Spain. In fact, I believe their entire set for fake Moscow was built outside of Madrid. Mm. And I heard that even during filming, it was unfortunately one of the warmer winters. So they had to like get fake snow to populate the set. <laughs> but you all had to wear all your furs. Man, it felt cold. That was yeah. so well done. They did a really good job. You see the frost on the mustache and just... Yeah, yeah. Like I was sitting cozy under blankets and I still felt a little bit of a chill just with multiple cats, right? Yeah, three cats. <laughs> yeah, I love when they the first time they open up the train door and it's just a sheet of ice they have to smash out before they can get rid of the uh, effluent filled hay. That was awesome. The poo poo. So we were talking about the pacing. I did want to say I agree that bookending it with my boy Sir Alec Guinness, the OG Obi-Wan Kenobi, yeah. was just beautiful. The whole, this is why we're telling this story, and then this is the summary of how the story ended, was a really, really good storytelling device. I felt like there were parts that weren't necessary that just kind of dragged it out. Like I didn't need a, a 15, 20-minute sequence watching this little boy's mom die and then seeing him get adopted. I didn't really care. Just tell me he's adopted. I believe you. Was it that long? It felt long, man. <laughs> it's not about how long it was. It's about how long it felt. That's true, though. I guess. I loved it. I just, the whole movie was amazing. One of my complaints um, would be the accents. I know English accents are typically done in historical movies, but I felt like they went super English for this one. And one was the scene where his stepfather's in with him and he's like, do you know what a will is, chap? And I thought, come on, chap. like you don't need to throw that in. And then in the World War One scenes where they're going over the top, like, let's go, lads. Like, lads on tour. Yeah. <laughs> Tally-ho, boys, we're off to Moscow. Hup, hup. Yeah. And, and they were yeah. calling... Yeah. biscuits and scones. They were saying, monsieur... As introducing someone as like a monsieur, 
And I was like, hold on a second. Look, are these are, I'm already willing to buy that these are Russian people with English accents, but don't make them speak French because now it's just confusing as fuck. I read a book this summer called The Gentleman in Moscow, and it's set during this time of this affluent fellow who now has to reside in a hotel his whole life. But the upper class Russians had this obsession with France because it was viewed as culture and that. So they spoke it, what they ate was French. So I think that is just showing that. Okay. Maybe obsession with the culture, but I don't know if they flushed it out well okay. enough. That's what I thought. I didn't have anything to bake it out. Well, I, I'm willing to buy that. Yeah, we oui, we. Oui. I totally agree with you, Craig. I think bookending it with the brother seeking out and trying to do good and support the family and his brother and what his brother was doing was great. I liked the framing device. Totally agree with you. A good reason to explain the story and say, hey, audience, this is why this is happening. Yeah, he loved his brother because he was his brother and saw an opportunity to do the right thing in a world that isn't necessarily a good world. Mm -hmm. I have a question. So you said things felt a bit long in the pacing. Wasn't as seamless as you would like. I totally agree. And that's my one criticism of the film is that there were a couple scenes that were too long. This is a question anyone can answer, but if you were going to cut anything to make this a more streamlined experience, where do you think you would cut off a little bit of the fat? I felt like there was a lot of long shots in the last act. So long shots, you know, sledding in the snow, the scene with the wolves, and then the follow-up scene with the wolves, and nothing happened with wolves. Like, everyone was so afraid of these wolves, you thought that they were the velociraptors from Jurassic Park, and they were going to turn the door handle and sneak in in the night and kill you and then he just went like booga booga and the wolves ran away and we were like well that's the problem solved there no more wolf problem there was a lot of stuff like that that just was drawn out and you thought it was going to matter and then nothing happened that's how Chivago lived his life. He never really gets phased. He gets a little upset and misty-eyed every so often, but he would really just go ooga booga, right? Like that's basically how he handled being uh, kidnapped. That's how he handled dealing with Pasha on the train, right? That doesn't make an interesting character, though. I actually felt like he wasn't even the most interesting character. I felt like he was the center point around which interesting characters performed. I would agree. Very well said. Yeah, he was definitely not the most interesting character. I completely agree. He felt like a great person that you could self-insert with, but he wasn't extraordinarily dynamic. And a lot of the interesting interactions, they were held together by him as the glue, but a lot of the interesting elements were orbiting around mm -hmm. him, basically. Mm. I agree with you, Craig. I think the second act in particular really slowed down the pace. I thought the first half was fantastic and everything was quick and there was a lot of consequence and important things happening back to back to back. But as soon as they leave the train and they get back into their civilian life, that's when the pace kind of slows down. I think you could cut out maybe about 20 to 30 minutes of just the mundane tasks mm -hmm. before he gets abducted and even slightly after he gets abducted and you have a much more streamlined second half. I agree with you. I think that's where it started to get long in the tooth for me. Disagree. I think it was perfect. I think that the longer scenes, they could have been much worse. Under A lesser director could have drawn them out too much. Are you trying to throw shade at my boy, Kurosawa? <laughs> I wasn't, but yeah, now that you, <laughs> you mention it. No, like, I think if you just had a little blip, you wouldn't get the true feeling of the cold that is Russia and the what they were dealing with, right? I think it was well done. There's n There was no point in this movie that I was like, this is too slow. It's not going fast enough. I would like to say that it's pacing between scenes and between shots was a lot more coherent than Bonnie and Clyde. The yes. pace I and disagree. path of storytelling made a lot more sense to me. Things didn't just seem to happen out of nowhere. Everything seemed to happen in a good sequence over a good duration. Yes. 
I think Bonnie and Clyde and this film did a bad job of portraying time. We need a Reservoir Dogs title card because when World War One started, I'm like, wait, is this the Russian Revolution or is this World War One? And it was only until like 10 minutes later, I'm like, oh, I guess that was World War One because we're, now we're doing Civil War, right? But is that a Jordan problem? I don't want to be mean, but I think that's a Maybe. Jordan problem. It might be a Jordan yeah, problem. I was, Guys, I'm too stupid. Who they fighting? Russian? I too remember during the revolution when the Russians went to fight on the German front. I don't know it's when Germany. In the it's trenches. No, it was the cold. I'm like, is this Germany? Is this Russia? Yeah. Where are they? Huh? Trenches, World War One, guerrilla fighting in the forest, revolution, civil war. All right, fair enough. I did think that World War One was over really fast. Yeah, there was one scene where they went over the, the lip of a trench, and then there was a scene with Zhivago tying up a bandage, and we were like, oh, World War One, boom, call it. Just get the lads over the top. Yeah, get the lads over the top, problem solved, easy peasy. But that was part of the vision, right? To focus on romance and de-emphasize the actual fighting. Yeah, I know. I think there was always a good cue that time had passed. Yeah. Like there's a baby, right? Like there was one thing where we see Laura and she's got like a little kid. So we're like, oh shit, okay. Some time has passed here. Right? It, was, it was marked. Yeah, I agree. Like I said, the pacing in this movie I felt was way better than Bonnie and Clyde. Which yeah. jumped all over the place. Right, like that one time, the time jump in Bonnie and Clyde were like, why is she running? No, it did a really good job sequencing between shots. I totally agree with you, Chris. And I would have very much liked a little like the Urals in 1875 when it, his parents are dying, but you can kind of put it together, work it backwards. This film was sold as like a war slash romance, but it almost felt more to me like a tragedy. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of W's for any of these characters, and it's just a barrage over and over and over again of terrible terrible things happening to them so just like life especially in communist russia yeah <laughs> i wasn't necessarily engaged particularly in the romance i just became attached to the characters themselves i had no investment i'm like whoever you end up with or whoever kids you have that's not really important to me it was more of just seeing how these characters managed to pull themselves through this just awful awful experience yeah i agree and frankly i didn't give a shit what happened to Zhivago at the end when they showed uh he was trying to get the girl's attention and he had a heart attack in the middle of the street and i was like yeah well these things happen yeah <laughs> That was one of the few moments of the film where I thought, this is really cliche and silly. Just to see her and then be steps away and then keel over and die of a heart attack. I'm like, yeah, okay. But where do these cliches come from? Because this might be one of those films that developed that cliche. Oh. Even if it was, it's still stupid. <laughs> are we 100% sure that it actually was her? I don't think we are 100% sure of that. I didn't think it was her. I thought it was someone who looked like her. I agree. But that might be one of those uh, Guillermo del Toro, it's whatever you think it is moments. <laughs> no, I liked it. It had a real Russian romance and drama feel to me like i haven't read war and peace but i have read notes from the underground stuff like that the ballet the seagull is right in line with this i'm not well versed in ballet my apologies or russian literature <laughs> or anything to me this was very much in line with that sort of uh, russian ethos yes forgive my ignorance but i'm not well versed in russian literature I'm so unversed in Russian literature. I saw them holding up the Russian signs during the revolution, and I just read them as like capture codes to prove you're not a robot. <laughs> I'm like, I think that's an L and an S Mokba. and a B. Is that pronounced Mokba? <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone have anything else they want to add? I had a fun fact. For the composer, he was trying to create the theme song, Lara's song, and he was not having a good time. David Lean didn't like any of the cuts, so David Lean told him like, 
go home this weekend, make love to your wife all weekend, and come back Monday. And he came back on the Monday with the theme song and worked. Honey, we have to do it. It's for work. <laughs> it's I'm getting paid. It's for work. <laughs> he shows his first his first submission. It's just like the bounce. <laughs> Which is amazing because that style of music didn't even exist. <laughs> he was a groundbreaking uh, artist. Yeah. Brie made a great joke when we were sitting there watching Yuri write poetry for 20 minutes and she said how funny it would be if the camera panned to what he's writing and it says all work and no play makes Yuri a dull boy. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's what it says. It's just a drawing of dick butt. Can you not... <laughs> yeah, so things that I that we didn't talk about that I thought were amazing. When Lana's mom ODs and Victor is panicking and running through the dress shop and we see all of that from outside the windows, that was amazing. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, that was really good foreshadowing to him getting caught by Zhivago later in that same scene. Yeah, the, the whole place's windows and yeah. That that was a recurring theme. Looking through both the, all their windows, they were some of them were frozen. Uh, Pasha's place with the candle melting a circle in the frost. What else was awesome in there that I've got written down? Oh, the sad sunflowers when they left the hospital. That was nice. Did you notice as he walked by, some of the petals fell from the sunflowers that were on the table? No, but no, that's beautiful. I didn't. This movie was just they went. They thought of every detail. Oh, the guitar thing. I know they said it once. What it was called. There you go, what you said. That almost was a character. It was always there. It was the most constant piece throughout the entire narrative. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> I loved at the very end when she's got one on her back, walking away from the brother at the very end scene. It felt good. And I thought it was a really nice way to tie that into the end. And it just showed such a great attention to detail. Yeah, it was great. Was there anything else that was... The, the frozen stuff was awesome. It felt so cold. I didn't comment on it at the time, but I do think if you do cut more of the cold wilderness in the second half, it doesn't have that overbearing, penetrative feel. And so I do understand why you would keep it. It helps set the tone and the ambience and the atmosphere, but it does wane on the kind of border of obnoxious. It's close. To me, it was right on. If it had been a bit more, maybe too much, but the director knew what he was doing and didn't bore us to death. But like the estate house that was frozen, that was like with the little onion tops and then the cottage being totally frozen over. The interior of that, the summer state just being all frozen, but still had the crystal chandelier. That was just gold. All the cinematography and the set design was all top notch. And the costumes, nothing felt cheap. No. Not to rag on Tarantino, but he had his two sets and he did great things with what he had. But this, it didn't feel like there was any budgetary constraints at all. My One of my favorite scenes was on the top of the train and you have the red flags billowing out on either side and you're just looking into snow and it's just going ahead. I thought that was a really neat shot. Yeah, so I feel like I've been ripping on this movie a lot. I want to be clear. I really thought that it was a great story and they did a really good job telling it. I just think they needed to cut some minutes in some places. There was a lot of great cinematography, long, beautiful, like, vista shots. And I tend to agree with you if they hadn't spent the time to let us know how goddamn cold it was in the last act, we might not have bought it. But it also felt like after too many of those uh, scenes and... It it just started to drag for me. 
That's fair. I would almost like to go rewatch The Revenant to see how that generated that effect and if it did it by using a lot of those uh, long drawn out shots. Mm-hmm. I've never ever seen The Revenant. <laughs> This is the same director that does Lawrence of Arabia, which I think is on our list a little bit further down. And he used the same cinematographer, he used the same composer. So it'll be interesting to be able to compare it and see if the same shots, the same type of things were used with both of those films, because that's another kind of desolate type of story. People generally regard Lawrence of Arabia as the superior film. So it'll be interesting to see what evolutions and changes are made to kind of elevate it. I'm really excited Mm -hmm. for it. I think it'll be great. I've seen it. I don't remember any of it. (laughs) But now you'll have a new appreciation. I will, because I'm a different person than I was two decades ago when <laughs> I watched at your age. All right, Sarah, where are you going to put Dr. Shivago on your list? I put it above Pan's Labyrinth and below Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. Yes. Very cool. How about you, Craig? Where do you think it goes? Yeah, I'm going to put it directly below Reservoir Dogs, directly above Pan's Labyrinth. Ooh, number two. And how about you, Chris? Tippity top. I don't, I'm not surprised by that. It was a tough call for me to keep it below Reservoir Dogs. It's barely in second place. It's just like, you know, I love Tarantino, but this feels important. It was so good. Like every part of it, it feels like it's an important piece of art instead of just a cool movie, which Reservoir Dogs is. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think it all depends on what you're interested in, right? Because Reservoir Dogs has a very particular tone. And if you jive with that, then that is an amazing film. So I could see very much either of these being on the top of the list that we've generated so far, just based on personal preference. So I totally understand why you would put Reservoir Dogs on top. It's just, it's great for what it is, but it's a totally different beast. And we all know where I put Reservoir Dogs. So I'm going to have to slot Dr. Zhivago at number one. Nice. I think it deserves it. I think it feels important. I like how it integrates history into its story. I like that the history is a backdrop and not necessarily the primary focus. I like how we get led through it by not a soldier, not a general, not a fighter pilot, by just an everyman trying to survive, trying to make it through the chaos. And I thought that was an awesome way to experience and learn about a little bit of Russian history. I totally agree with you. I think my favorite part about the film was how they used almost like, to me, a nameless, faceless character and then had this great world telling a story around him it's a good way to put it yes it had a real feel of the world i don't want to pick on any other movies pants labyrinth inconsistencies right between even the like the dress shop i'm like i could live there yes please or dining in that very expensive restaurant in the square yeah i'm like yes please yeah this just all goes back to how i feel about the budget it feels like no expense was spared this felt like a living breathing world Mm -hmm. absolutely and everything was believable things were consistent across it it felt so immersive and i think that's why the world as a character feels super important Mm -hmm. and super successful in this situation i read that the budget was five million but it wound up going to 15 but that's fine (laughs) because this is like the 10th highest grossing movie of all time or something like that adjusted for inflation yeah worth every penny yeah for sure do you imagine that being like i spent triple the budget sorry guys <laughs> and then made one of the greatest films of all time yeah i'm okay with money that. well spent yeah, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. i agree so chris can you let our audience know what we'll be watching in the next episode next week we'll be watching deer hunter you can find it on the crave stars package so not the regular crave if you want to stream it you can rent it on google play microsoft or youtube Very cool. Looking forward to this one. This one is also war-related, very much critically acclaimed, released in 1978. I think it'll be a good time. Until next time, guys, thank you for listening, and we will see you in episode seven. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. 
Uh, <laughs> I have one more thing I want to add. Okay, so Tanya's father had a magnification device. It was two circular frames attached to each other with lenses in the middle, clipped on with a chain to his vest pocket. Chris thinks those are glasses. I think it's a double wide monocle. Who's right? Oh man, that's a tough call. What makes a glasses? You know what? By the name glasses, I tend to think that two pieces of glass determines whether or not it's glasses. I think I got to go with glasses. Yeah, yeah. I would vote with Chris. I think glasses need arms. No, I really don't think they do. And also, monocle means one. Mono means one. Rail but means when rail. It's a double wide. But it's double wide. <laughs> That's still not even accurate. <laughs> Two. It would just be a double monocle, which is glasses. I think it's different because of the chain as well. Because Morpheus in the Matrix has sunglasses with no arms, but there's no chain connecting it to his vest pocket like you would have with a monocle. Well, Morpheus just uses the Matrix to make them not fall off his face. If he didn't have that power, he would have to have a chain. True, so that's a double wide monocle. A well. monocle is not defined by whether it has a chain or not. It's defined by the fact it is a monocle. Monocle. One aqua. Yeah, it's a one aqua. Jordan, when you get dressed, do you wear a pair of pants or do you wear a double wide single leg of pants? <laughs> oh, a double wide pant. <laughs> yeah, a double wide pant. Yeah. 